Alright, so I'm about to okay. bring the key, Jay. Yeah. Oh, Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada, Nama Om Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Prasaya Bhutale, Srimati Bhaktivedanta Swami, Nityananda, Namaste Saraswati Deve, Gauravani Pachami, Nisesasana Haridasa Chadesitani, Vandeham Sri Guru, Sri Udhava Padakamalam, Sri Guru Vaishnavamscha, Sri Rupam Sagradatam, Sahagana Raghunatam, Vitams Tamasajivam, Sadvaitam, Sadvaitam, Parijana, Sahita, Krishna Chaitanya Devam, Sri Radha, Krishna Param, Sahagana, Radha, Sri Vishakam, Vitamsha. Manchakalpa, Tupas, Chakrupa, Sindhaviva, Chapa, Tichanam, Pavanavya, Vaishnadeva, Namaha. Om Nimo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Nimo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. So it is January 26, 2022, in Hawaii, and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam. Canto 4, <coughs> Chapter 29, Text 70. Nahamma meti bhavo yam Nahamma meti bhavo yam Purushe vya vadiyate Yavad Budi Manokshartha Yavad Budi Manokshartha Guna Yat Yanadinam Guna Christian Na Not Aham I I Mama Mine. Mine. Itty. Thus. Bhavaha. Consciousness. I am. This. Purushe. In the living entity. Vyavadiyate. Is separated. Yavat. Yavat. So long. So long. Budi. Intelligence. Manaha. Manaha. Mind. Mind. Aksha. Senses. Senses. Arta. Sense objects. Sense objects. Guna. Of the material qualities. Of the material qualities. Vyuha. A manifestation. A manifestation. He. Certainly. Anadiman. The subtle body existing since time immemorial. 
Shila Prabhupada's translation. As long as there exists the subtle material body composed of intelligence, mind, senses, sense objects, and the reactions of the material qualities, the consciousness of false identification and its relative objective, the gross body, exist as well. Shila Prabhupada's purport. The desires in the subtle body of mind, intelligence, and ego cannot be fulfilled without a gross body composed of the material elements earth, water, air, fire, and ether. When the gross material body is not manifest, the living entity cannot factually act in the modes of material nature. In this verse, it is clearly explained that the subtle activities of the mind and intelligence continue due to the sufferings and enjoyments of the living entity's subtle body. The consciousness of material identification, such as I and mine, still continues because such consciousness has been extant from time immemorial. However, when one transfers to the spiritual world, by virtue of understanding Krishna consciousness, the actions and reactions of both gross and subtle bodies no longer bother the spirit soul. Nahamametibhavo yam purushe vya vadiyate as long as there exists a subtle material body composed of intelligence, mind, senses, sense objects, and the reactions of the material qualities, the consciousness of false identification, and its relative objective, the gross body, exists as well. So this is the study of the workings of the subtle material energy. So most modern science... Uh, understands something of the gross material energy. Uh, modern medicine does not come anywhere close to understanding the workings of the gross body. For example, uh, the majority, the vast majority of medicines that work on various diseases, uh, no doctors or scientists fully understand the mechanism by which those medicines work. Sometimes they don't understand it at all. Uh, there may be some few instances where they understand it completely, but generally they have a partial understanding, and there are many times when they just don't understand it at all. So, um, medicine works. They don't know why. <laughs> and that's the gross body. As far as the subtle body, there have certainly been many attempts uh, by scientists, by governments, <laughs> to try to understand the subtle body. Uh, but they understand that even less. And the official word is that there is no subtle body. So if you're going to, to school in the, in the developed world, you will be basically told both directly and indirectly that anyone who believes in the subtle body is, is off, is, is uh, not an acceptable member of society, whereas at the same time, governments are doing <laughs> all sorts of experimentation with the mechanisms of the subtle body, trying to, mostly to weaponize, <laughs> uh, to weaponize them. And of course, uh, there is so much uh, strong empirical evidence for the existence and the workings of the subtle body. However, it's much less understood, hardly even admitted. My guess is that it's not admitted by mainstream science in their official uh, documents, their official teaching, because they understand so little of it. I mean, they don't understand much about the gross body, but they understand hardly anything about the subtle body, and I think it's hard to 
admit that something exists that you don't know much about. Also, as soon as they admit the existence of a subtle body, uh, then it's not that far of a leap from there to understanding the existence of the soul, and then the whole philosophy based on just gross matter is not going to be able to, to stand. So why are we trying to understand the subtle body? As I said, the governments of the world definitely, absolutely definitely, are trying to understand the subtle body, but their primary motive seems to be military. It seems to be to weaponize the subtle body and the powers of the subtle body. Uh, there certainly are people, more and more people in the medical establishment who are trying to understand the workings of the subtle body for the purposes of healing, uh, both psychological and physical healing. And then, of course, there are those who want to understand the mechanisms of the subtle body so that they can gain power over the gross body and power over the world. And just like we have throughout the Shastra, uh, all over the place, we have descriptions of those who could harness subtle power in order to gain control over the world. Of course, the Brahmanas, uh, up until the time of, of uh, Shamakarishi's son, Shringi, were able to harness these subtle powers to the point that they could say, you know, you're, you're going to be cursed to die in a week by some imaginary snake bird, and then that snake bird would manifest and kill you. I mean, it was, it was like that. And so everybody was afraid of the Brahmanas. You know, if you, you find all these admonitions, you know, don't offend the Brahmanas. And part of that reason was that the Brahmanas could curse you or bless you. You know, if, if a Brahmana came and said, become a frog, become an elephant, you know, you, you did. <laughs> and of course, uh, there were so many stories, even in the, the folk tales and such of the world, of wizards and magicians who could, by saying the proper words or by manipulating the subtle energy, do so many amazing things. So this is left, these stories are in human society, left from the time when the Brahmanas could do that. And not only the Brahmanas, the Kshatriyas, not to the same extent that the Brahmanas had, but the Kshatriyas also, uh, they actually used the subtle powers uh, as weapons, <laughs> they they indeed weaponized and militarized subtle energy, which is one reason why the Kshatriyas didn't have as much access to subtle energy as the Brahmanas did. But they had enough access, they could create a Brahmastra, which was a targeted atomic weapon. You know, there's talk about that in the in the military, you know, why don't we come up with a weapon that can just, you know, kill the people inside the building and not destroy the building. Uh, but the, the Brahmastra could do that. It could target a, an unborn child. So the Kshatriyas had such things. They could take out an ordinary seeming arrow. I mean, how much can you do with an arrow? But they would infuse it with subtle energies so that the arrow could create a rainstorm or a mountain or illusions or all sorts of things. So why are we interested in studying the nature of the subtle energy? here in the Bhagavatam. So we're, we're not trying to study it in order to weaponize it. We're not trying to study it in order to control the material energy. Uh, but we're trying to study it actually, I, <laughs> ironically, to get rid of it. We, want, we are studying it for the purpose of, of ultimate liberation in, in Krishna Prema. That's why we're studying it. Because as Prabhupada says, the gross and subtle bodies are a burden to the soul. 
So uh, he says here, they're, they're a botheration. <laughs> they bother the spirit soul. So materialistic people, up to very high levels of materialistic people, are trying to understand how to use the gross and subtle energy in order to be happy in this world and be the masters of this world and the controllers of this world. Now that's, that's their purpose. And the transcendentalists, they're interested in studying both gross and subtle matter to learn how to stop being bothered by it. <laughs> that their, their interest is to have uh, a pleasure beyond that. Trying to have a pleasure that's beyond that. I'm listening to a conversation this morning, uh, actually yesterday and this morning, where Prabhupada was saying, what is the purpose of life? And the people he was speaking with said, well, the purpose is transcendence. And Prabhupada said, yes. He said, not just eating, sleeping, mating, and defending, not just maintaining your family and sleeping at night or having sex at night and working hard during the day. And someone said, well, you have to do those things. Prabhupada said, yes, but they are not the goal of life. And then someone asked a very interesting question and said, what is the purpose of transcendence? Why should we aim towards transcendence? And he actually asked a question very similar to Arjuna's question, or doubt, you could say, in the end of the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, where he said, you know, suppose I, I this person talking to Srila Prabhupada, he said, suppose I aim for transcendence and I don't achieve it, so then I will have achieved nothing. I will not achieve transcendence, nor will I have put my time into being materially successful. And then what? You know, and, and, and what am I going to get <laughs> by achieving transcendence? So the answer, of course, is that whatever one wants in this world, we actually don't get. We want love, we want security, we want meaning, we want knowledge. Somebody, we could list what it is that we want. And we really don't get that. <laughs> we, we really don't. You know, we get some temporary illusion of it here and there, but ultimately we don't. We don't get that. And why should we get transcendence? Why should we go for transcendence? Because there is everything that we want. <laughs> because there is ourselves. Srila Prabhupada was saying to this, this person that transcendence is realizing yourself. And he said, just like you can analyze the whole ocean from a drop of seawater, so you can understand the full transcendence by knowing yourself, that you are separate from the body. Huh? So why don't we just do that? Why don't we just focus on what is the nature of the soul? What is the nature of transcendence? What is the nature of God? Why spend any time looking at the nature of the gross and subtle body? And in fact, there are people who evidently do that. You know, who separate themselves from the world to such an extent that they try to have absolutely nothing to do with the gross and subtle body, uh, but simply focus on transcendence. However, the Ishapanishad says we must know both. Hmm? We must know both. We have to understand both. We have to understand how we're entangled. Like someone who is an addict, someone who's addicted to a drug or alcohol or something like that. Uh, they, in order, they have to have some idea of what it means to be free, but they also have to have some idea of how the addiction is controlling them. What are the signs? I mean, even if you want to change an ordinary bad habit, you know, that you're eating high-calorie snacks every day in the afternoon or something, you know, to know what is the precipitating factor. 
what is it that if you study habits, you know, what is it, what is the cue that tells your body and brain, okay, now it's, it's time to eat the, the high caloric food? <laughs> and what is the reward that you feel you're getting from it? And one has to understand that in order to change the habit. So one has to understand the nature of entanglement and the nature of freedom both. So that is why we are studying this subject. All right, let's get into the study of the subtle body here. There's, this is a very rich verse and purport about the nature of the mind. And with the idea that we're looking at this for the purpose of, of destroying it, <laughs> for the purpose of transcending it. All right, so uh, looking at this verse in the context of the chapter, the question is, who is the doer from one life? How can there be reactions to karma from one life to the next? And the answer has been, well, because there's a subtle body. There's the mind, intelligence, and ego that, that goes from one body to another. So there's a continuous doer, right? Because one body looks so different from another. You, know, you die and you have another body. Who's, how is it the same person? But there is a traveling subtle body but at the same time without a gross body the argument can be made that when when the subtle body is without a gross body when it's between lives then there is no doer I mean Prabhupada sort of kind of says this where he says that the living entity cannot factually act in the modes of nature when there's no gross body there's no instrument to act in the modes of nature generally of course I mean, Prabhupada just states this, but that's generally true. We do sometimes find entities with only a subtle body that can actually manipulate gross matter without a gross body. Uh, Poltergeist. But the concept that without a gross body, the subtle body cannot really be a doer, well, that might indicate that all you have to do is get rid of the gross body, and then you should be liberated. And such, of course, is what drives all suicides. So anyone who commits suicide is under the conception that if I destroy the gross body, I'll be liberated. You know. However they conceive of liberation. And you could say slow suicides. You know, people who live life a lifestyle that is going to accelerate death or is going to have them go through life as if they're dead. You know, people who are, are constantly intoxicated with some heavy uh, sedative type of intoxication, like alcohol or heroin, or, you know, where they're, they're... It's almost like they're anesthetized. You know, like a person gets fully anesthetized to have a surgical operation. They're there, but they have no awareness. So people put themselves into a stupor-like state and they go through life in like a super stupor like state so they're practically like they're dead you know although they're alive and they're thinking this way I'll get liberated this way I won't however they're defining liberation but at least I won't be suffering that is the the concept so here the answer is no that that's not true that although the subtle body cannot act away from the gross body generally that this subtle body maintains the false identification of I and mine, Mameti. And therefore, this false identification it continues. 
And the subtle body may not be able to act within the gunas without a gross body, but it is also the product of the gunas. And so destruction of the gross body, either by, by natural death or by suicide or by trying to destroy it without dying, <laughs> doesn't result in liberation. In fact, such attempts result in further entanglement. So people who live, you know, death-like lives or people who commit suicide actually uh, get more entangled in the modes of material nature rather than liberated. Many, many years ago here, there was a, a girl who'd been visiting the temple regularly, Indian girl, and her parents were trying to force her marriage to somebody that she hated and who was not interested in Krishna consciousness, and so she committed suicide. There's a river on the property, and she drowned herself in the river. And one of the members of the community actually uh, saw her in her subtle body crying, saying, I didn't realize I, I would become a ghost. I thought I would go to Vrindavan. So this is the, the problem that, that it actually that doesn't cause liberation because the basic problem is not in the gross body. The basic problem is in the subtle body. So again, this is why we want to study this because if we want actual liberation, we have to know where the problem lies. It doesn't lie in the gross body. I mean, Prabhupada would give the example often about uh, a sexual desire and how even old people who may be physically incapable, more or less, of enjoying sex still have that desire to do so. And he, he told about the famous story of the king who asked his minister, you know, when am I going to be free of this? And the minister said, you're not. <laughs> And he said, I tell you what, you know, you have a young, beautiful daughter. Bring her with me. Bring, bring her with you. And so they went to visit a man on his deathbed. And even though it was the king there, the man immediately looked at the young girl, even though he was on his deathbed. And the king could understand the desire is present in the subtle body, even if it has no means or little means for expression in the gross body. And those of us who've gotten old, we see that our desire, like Prabhupada would say, you know, he'd see people running and jumping. I did that when I was a child. You know, I see people being able physically to do things that I really can't do anymore. And it doesn't mean that I don't want to do them. It doesn't mean I don't want to run and play and you know, <laughs> or be able to eat things <laughs> that I can't digest. So the those desires are there in the subtle body, and the the concept of I and mine as separate from Krishna, is there in the subtle body. Now, it's interesting because that changes from life to life. In one life, it's I am a woman. In one life, it's I am a man. In one life, I am a human. In one life, I am a donkey. In one life, I am a human. In one life, I am a demigod. In one life, I am, you know, Brazilian. In another life, I am a Finnish or whatever. And you might say, well, how does this I and mine persist from one life to another when the details of the I and mine completely change? You know, I, my I and mine in this life, I am the child of such and such people, I am the spouse of such and such a person, I am the parents of such and such a person, in my other life it'll be a different thing. But this concept that I belong to the material world and I am the Lord and I am the controller, Ishwarahamahambogi, that I am, I and mine is separate from the Lord, that does persist, although the details of it change. I mean, come on, the details of it change in this life. 
So when I was a little child, my main identification was I am the child of my parents. And when I got older and got married, then my main identification was I am the spouse of my husband. And then I had children, and my identification became I am the mother of these children. So when I was five, I didn't have an identification of I am the mother of these children. Or, you know, you own different cars. I am the owner of this car. Now, now I am the owner of that car. And I live in this place. I live in that place. But there's some continuous sense of I and mine that is a false sense. And uh, Prabhupada says here, interestingly enough, in the purport, uh, about the suffering enjoyment. He said, it's clearly explained the subtle activities of the mind and intelligence continue due to the sufferings and enjoyments of the living entity's subtle body. So all of our suffering enjoyments, and I talk about this a lot because it's quite important and it's, it's brought up in the Shastra a lot. All of our suffering enjoyment is in the mind. It's all in the subtle body. None of it is in the gross body. It appears like that because it appears, you know, if I cut my finger, it appears that the pain is located in my finger. That's what it appears to be. And there used to be a theory, it's, it's now not accepted, but there used to be a theory that the way you felt suffering in your finger is the nerves in your finger experience, you know, they, they experience pain there in your finger. And that information, there is pain in the finger, was sent by the nerves via the spinal column to the brain, and then the brain had some kind of pain center. Well, that's not true at all. There's no pain center in the brain whatsoever, and the nerves don't feel anything that you could call pain, nor do they feel anything that you can call pleasure. They do feel various sensations, and the subtle body then labels them as painful and pleasurable. Uh, it is, there's no pain center in the brain. Pleasure and pain are an opinion of the subtle body. I mean, for those who don't accept the existence of a subtle body, they'll say it's an, exist, an opinion of the brain. So modern medicine is now saying pain and pleasure are an opinion of the brain, but actually they're not anywhere in the brain. They're an opinion of the subtle body. And this is very, very easy to understand. And I give this example a lot. I, I don't like really spicy food. I mean, a little bit's okay, but if it's really spicy, I, it, it just it upsets my stomach, and I don't enjoy eating it. I, I find the experience to be painful. But other people find the experience to be pleasurable. Well, the same experience. I'm sitting next to somebody, and we're eating exactly the same food. And I'm like, oh, this is so painful. And they're saying, oh, this is so pleasurable. And the same can be said for so many things. I, there are so many things that I will find pleasurable that someone else will find painful. Or I will find painful that someone else will find pleasurable. I mean, there's, we could list millions and millions of things like this. I mean, actually painful. There's things that I, I will identify as being painful, physically painful, that someone else will say, oh, this is actually pleasurable. You know, I want to speak of, of emotionally. There are things that I will feel emotionally painful that other people will find pleasurable and so forth. So is it painful or is it pleasurable? What is it? And then you may say, well, come on, there's universal things that people find to be pleasurable and universal things that people find to be painful. Not really. Uh, it's really an opinion of the mind. It's how the mind chooses to interpret sensations, whether they're physical sensations 
or whether they're events in the world. It's, it's the spin that we put on them. I mean, one of the most valuable things to study is the difference between an objective fact and one's story about that fact. <laughs> what does that fact mean? And that the meaning that we ascribe to an objective fact is subjective. It's not truth. It's simply our mind's opinion. And again, we see the truth of this all the time, that some objective event happens and different people interpret it very differently. Some people will interpret it as neutral, other people will interpret it as something terrible, and other people will interpret it as something wonderful. I mean, just, uh, I'm not going to get into a debate on this, but just as an example is, is the vaccines that have been developed for COVID-19. So some people see this as, as wonderful, a wonderful achievement of modern science that so quickly after a disease, a new disease comes out, science was able to come out with a vaccine for it. And other people perceive this as a terrible thing, that these are the machinations of evil governments and, and evil scientists to control people. And exactly the same thing is perceived, you know, completely 180 degrees differently as something wonderful or something terrible. Uh, so what is it? Is it wonderful or terrible? I mean, it, there isn't an answer to that. It simply is. And therefore, Krishna Das Kavira says, all this talk of good and bad, it's all in the mind. It's all in the mind. Or, you know, somebody gets elected the head of a country and, and half the country is celebrating and half the country is mourning. <laughs> it's just... This is, this is the way it is. So the sufferings and enjoyment are in the mind. They're all in the subtle body. They don't exist in the gross body. Actually, the gross body has no feeling at all. None. Zero. Which is why when one's mind is anesthetized, uh, there, there's no feeling in the gross body. The doctors can cut it up. And, uh, the gross body feels nothing. So the materialists try to solve the problems of life and get liberated from the problems of life by changing the gross and subtle body, by moving, by changing the gross body in this life, getting it fatter, getting it thinner, getting it more muscular, get whatever, dyeing the hair, having plastic surgery, wearing clothes that disguise or appear to augment different parts of the body, or by changing the subtle body, trying to... Uh, if they're really intelligent, trying to change the modes of nature of the subtle body, trying to go from Thomas to Rajas, Rajas to Sattva, but trying in some way to change how they're, they're working in the subtle body. Uh, so these things may be, uh, may be helpful. I mean, it may be helpful to get, you know, exercise and get better blood circulation and have a good diet and, be more forgiving rather than annoyed. <laughs> so the, 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 these things are certainly helpful, but they don't in and of themselves actually solve the situation. It's like if you're in a prison cell and there's a, a bare metal bed and they give you a mattress and a pillow, uh, but you're still in prison. Like there's that funny story of the this man who would uh, take goods for sale along the river, and he didn't have a boat. He had a barge that he pulled <laughs> himself. He was, it was like 
a, a human beast of burden, but in the water. So he would have this flat boat, this barge covered with goods for sale, and he would move it by water instead of moving it by land, and he would move it by pulling it. So he would walk on the edge of the river where it was still shallow and pull this, but the edge of the river there were sometimes sharp rocks. And so he was talking with a friend and saying, oh, I'd like to be rich. And, and his friend said to him, what would you do if you were rich? And he, would, he said, I would buy mattresses and I would line the, the riverbank with mattresses so that when I pulled my barge, my feet wouldn't get hurt. Or to the, you know, the woman who was gathering sticks in the forest and then their sticks fell down and she, God, save me, save me. And so Lord appeared and he said, what do you want? And she said, my sticks have all fallen, help me put them back on my head. So this is the materialistic view. And yes, it's a fact if you could cover the, the river bank with mattresses <laughs> or you, someone helps you put your sticks on your head, uh, that is helpful. We're not denying that that's helpful, but it doesn't really solve the problem. I mean, I'd rather be in a prison bunk with a mattress than on a bare metal bed, but it doesn't really solve the problem of whether or not we're in prison. Prabhupada said, you know, golden chains or iron chains. It, you're, still, you're still chained. You know, even the prisoners who are in the minimum security prison, and I don't know, maybe they have a tennis court or something, but they, they're still in prison. <laughs> uh, so the, the, what we want to do is get rid of the subtle body. Getting rid of the gross body is easy, you know, just shoot yourself in the head. Uh, but as we said, that actually compounds the problem. It doesn't, doesn't solve the problem. And anyway, everybody will get rid of the gross body at natural death, so that's not really an issue. That, that's going to happen. Everyone's going to lose this gross body at natural death. But how do we get rid of the subtle body? How do we get rid of the subtle body? So here Prabhupada's saying, when one transfers to the spiritual world by virtue of understanding Krishna consciousness, the actions and reactions of gross both and subtle bodies no longer bother the spirit soul. <laughs> so, to get rid of being bothered, what we have to do, Prabhupada is saying here, by virtue of understanding Krishna consciousness, is how Srila Prabhupada puts it here. Understanding Krishna consciousness. To understand how to be aware of Krishna. This awareness of Krishna, interestingly enough, starts in the subtle body. So it starts with using the mind intelligence and false ego to be aware of Krishna, to start to think, I am a devotee of Krishna, or, you know, I am a member of this uh, ISKCON or whatever, I'm a member of this mat, and, you know, to change the I instead of just, you know, I'm in a Canadian to I'm a member of this religious organization, I'm a sadhaka, I am initiate, I have a spiritual name, you know, I'm now Ram Dasi or Krishna Dasi or Krishna Das or, or something like that. So to change that I and mine, I have my service to do. I clean the temple room after the morning program or I cook the four o'clock offering or... Uh, you know, I get a, a new eye in mind, but it's still within the mind. It's still within the subtle body. So the subtle body starts changing its eye and mind to be about Krishna. Now, again, it's still within the subtle body. But there's this interesting thing. So 
plants get their energy from the sun. They get some energy, of course, from the ground. They get water from the ground. They get some minerals from the ground. They can be fed by other trees through their roots, uh, but what they're being fed by other trees uh, is the energy of the sun. So the primary way that plants live is that their leaves, using their chlorophyll for photosynthesis, eat sunlight. (laughs) They turn sunlight into their bodies. No, that's what they do. Now, sunlight, of course, is heat and light. So the plants are turning heat and light into their body, and they are also, uh, of course, using water and earth minerals. So when the plants die, we can burn them. Yes? Now, if they, if they die in, in particular ways and fossilize in particular ways, then they turn into really amazing ways of burning. They turn into oil. And, of course, our modern society is very much powered by fossil fuels. And fossil fuels are the fossils of plants, which has then made this concentrated uh, petroleum. But even ordinary plants have oils. Right? We have olive oil, we have sunflower oil, uh, so many different kinds of oils, which are generally from the seeds or the fruits of the plants which is the reproductive parts of the plants are always the concentrated part of the plant. So where does this this oil, you burn it, and when you burn it, you produce what? Heat and life, or you can, heat and light, or you can take the whole body of the plant, you take the body of the tree, and you cut it up, and you throw it in the fire, and it produces heat and light. Mm -hmm. So it releases that energy of the sun, it also produces smoke, which is releasing the water, and it's uh, if you dry it first and you let the water gradually release, then it doesn't produce as much smoke, and then it produces ash, which of course was the earth minerals that it got. But what happens as you burn that wood or that fossil fuel, or uh, is that the the wood itself or the fossil fuel itself goes away? Right? We have a propane tank outside the greenhouse, and as we're burning propane to heat Tulsi's greenhouse, the propane in the tank decreases. The fire that's stored in the gas, or the fire that's stored in the wood from the heat and light of the sun, when it's released, it burns up its source of fuel, so that there is no wood anymore. All that's left is the ashes, which is the, the minerals from the earth that the tree had pulled out. So the wood consume the fire that produ- is produced by the wood consumes the wood itself. So the principle is that the subtle body is a product of the modes of material nature, which is ultimately coming from Krishna. Ultimately, it's Krishna. There, you know, it is Krishna. <laughs> and as the subtle body starts meditating on Krishna, it's like it's being ignited. This is nicely explained by Krishna to Uddhava in the 11th canto. So it's as if you're igniting it and you're releasing uh, that energy that created it. And as you release that energy, you destroy the subtle body itself. So the more the subtle body is focused on Krishna, the more that energy of focusing on Krishna, it reveals Krishna, the source of the modes, and it destroys the subtle body. The subtle body 
basically ceases to exist and the original spiritual body of the soul starts to manifest. And the spiritual body of the soul, of course, also can think. <laughs> uh, it's not dualistic. The spiritual body of the soul is not a soul, subtle body, and gross body. It simply is the soul. It's the original form of the soul. Uh, as, as a simple analogy, uh, you can buy a packet of seeds. Uh, this is a different analogy. You can buy a packet of seeds, and the packet is usually made of paper. Let's say you soak this paper in water, so the packet will dissolve and the seeds will sprout. So similarly, if one is immersed in thinking of Krishna, the subtle body, the container for the spiritual body will dissolve and the actual spiritual body will start to manifest. It will gradually manifest. This example given a, is given a, a seed by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, it's also Prabhupada talks about it in a purport in the 10th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. So eventually, one's thinking of Krishna is not on the platform of the mind anymore because the material subtle body is dissolved. Eventually, one's thinking of Krishna is being done by the soul proper, activated by the internal energy of the Lord. The external energy of the Lord is no longer active. So the external energy that produces the subtle body has been burned away by its own energy, by connecting with the source. And the, the internal energy enlivens the soul, which is having its own thinking power that is radically different from the thinking power of the machine, Yantarudani Maya, of the subtle energy of Krishna's external energy, of Krishna's illusion. And at that point, one becomes, even in this body, one becomes Jivan Mukta. It's not necessarily that one has to transfer, as Prabhupada saying here, to the spiritual world, but even apparently still within this world, such a person is not bothered by any uh, remnant of the subtle body or by the gross body. They're certainly aware, you know, maybe they cut their, their finger of the gross body, but it doesn't bother them. They're not identifying things in this world as painful or pleasurable. They're neutral to the things of this world. That is not an aversion. They're neutral to the things of this world, which is not an aversion. And their pleasure and pleasurable pain is in the variety of emotions connected with Krishna. So that is our process of bhakti, that we do this by becoming attached to Krishna. We do this by thinking of Krishna, manmana bhava man bhakto. That's what we do. There are certainly other processes of yoga that use more mechanical means, but our process is simply changing the, the natural functions of the subtle body and the natural functions of the gross body to Krishna's service with the idea that by doing that, we awaken our real self and we dissolve this false I and mine and it becomes the I and mine becomes I belong to Krishna and Krishna is mine. Krishna belongs to me. I belong to Krishna and Krishna belongs to me. So we have about 10 minutes if anyone has any questions, comments. Thank you so much for your excellent class. Um, one thing that you said was that the, in the body itself there are no feelings. The body has, does not feel. Correct. And in the third chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says that the senses, mind, and intelligence are the sitting place for lust. So I, I'm uh, struggling to reconcile the two because the senses, I think, refer to the body. Yes. Uh, 
And so if, if within the senses, which is which this body, lust is seated or situated, that implies some kind of feeling. So can you help me there, please? All right. I, I would say it doesn't imply a feeling at all. It implies some sort of automatic reaction. So there may be an automatic reaction that if, you know, some attractive member of the opposite sex is there, the reproductive organs become activated. And if there's some nice food to, uh, you know, if there's some food that nourishes the body, the salivary glands in the tongue become activated. But if you were... If you were anesthetized, you wouldn't have any awareness of that. The body itself is, is no consciousness of itself, independent of the subtle body. And it has no opinion of these things other that it, within itself. It doesn't have any opinion. This is good, this is bad, this is nice, this is not nice. So yes, there are automatic mechanical reactions that occur in the body that are there for that are put in there for the preservation of the body. Uh, let's give a simple example. Some of you at this point may have experience of a semi-self-driving car. So I've never driven a Tesla, but I've been a passenger in one a few times. And the, the self-driving car can sense that there is a car in the other lane. Does that mean that there's any feeling in the Tesla? No. It can sense that there's a car there and it can move to another lane. It can avoid the obstacle. So that's built into the car for the preservation of the car and the preservation of the car's occupants. But any sense of goodness or badness or desire or hatred is not felt by the car. So the the natural urge of the various senses of the body towards its sense objects, yes, it's there in the body. But the body itself, without the subtle body, there, there's, no, there's no desire exactly. It's, it's a program for self-preservation. But it's not for, for, for bodily preservation. The car is programmed to preserve itself. The body is programmed to preserve it, itself. But the body without the soul will not react in that way. So in that sense, it's not the body it's itself not the body that is itself. attracted. It's exactly. Mm. Or even the subtle body. You know, like... It's okay, I can give you a really, really simple example. So it's a very bad idea to go shopping, to go grocery shopping when you're fasting. It's a really, really bad idea. So... My first experience of this was a long time ago. My God, I mean, must be in the 70s. Yeah, it was in the 70s. I was, I was fa- it was a fast day, and I went out grocery shopping. And that was the only time when I felt some attraction to the cakes in the grocery store. <laughs> so any other time I've been grocery shopping and there's cakes, I feel, I feel neutral toward them. I know what cake tastes like. I know that I like eating cake. Yesterday was my great-grandson's, the singer's two-year-old birthday, and we had some cake. And I like cake. I had a second piece. So, 
you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the cakes in the grocery stores taste good. They probably do. And I know I like cake, but I was neutral. You know, when I was fasting, I was so hungry that all of a sudden I wasn't neutral anymore. All of a sudden, you know, it was like, wow, those look really good. And then there was another part of me, oh, well, what is wrong with you? <laughs> You're not going to eat those. They're not prasada. They have eggs in them. And, you know, uh, and that was the end of that. But, you know, so where is it? Is it in the body? Is it in the gross body or is it in the subtle body? The gross body has some awareness that I have a sense and I have a sense object. But it's only whether or not the subtle body has an interest that is perceived as, as good or bad or desirable or not desirable. So you could say the lust is situated in the senses, it's situated in the tongue, it's situated in the belly. But ultimately it was situated in the mind. And if the mind didn't have any inclination, then the urges of the body would be, they're, they're extremely tan- transitory and insignificant. Thank you. Thank you for that. Is that all right? Uh, Mahalakshmi, you have a question? I see in the chat. Yes. Thank you, Prabhu. Um, that last sentence of the purport, Prabhupada says, however, when one transfers to the spiritual world by virtue of understanding Krishna consciousness, the actions and reactions of both gross and subtle bodies no longer bother the spiritual soul. No longer bother or they just end there. Well, if you're in the spiritual world, there isn't any gross and subtle body to bother you. It doesn't exist. And, you know, so if you're literally transferred to the spiritual world, you're not bothered by something because it's not there. But if you're transferred to the spiritual world in your consciousness, but you're still walking around the material world, they're there, but they don't bother you. You're aware of them. You know, you're aware that you need to bandage up your cut finger. Uh, it's not that you have no awareness, but the any any concepts of pain and pleasure are insignificant and transitory. They don't bother you because you don't hang on to them. You don't contemplate them. Thank you very much. about Zermala. Um, the 11th canto verse about destroying the subtle body connecting with its origin Krishna yes do, do, you, do, do you know what verse is that I can look it up okay uh, if you give me a moment anyone else have some question while I'm looking that up You have like four minutes before you have to Yeah, you a lot of really nice examples of things that are assumed in medicine and other places that are not true. Mm. Interesting. There's starting to be much more of an awareness in medicine that, um, that you need to have integrated medicine. It, it's starting to be more of an awareness that they'll call it integrated medicine, they call it mind-body medicine. In one of the hospitals near here, they have a pain psychology clinic. And in another hospital, they have an integrated medicine clinic. So they're starting to understand. 
I mean, they know that placebos work 30% of the time. That's definitely a mind-body connection. Why would placebo? And placebos right. will often even work when you know it's a placebo, which is really far out. Huh. So, you know, they, yeah, they know that. Yeah. 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 They know that. If, if your mind is good, you're good. <laughs> yeah, and there's nocebos too. Nocebo is, you know, if you think you're going to suffer, you'll suffer. So, that's also there. Okay, well, this starts with 11, what is the chapter? 12, 18, where, prop, where Krishna. Krishna is uh, describing to Uddhava about... Um, sound in relation to wood. And let me also look in general. Okay, we have 422.26. Upon becoming fixed in his attachment to the Supreme Personality of Godhead by the grace of the spiritual master and by awakening knowledge and detachment the living entity situated within the heart of the body and covered by the five elements burns up his material surroundings exactly as fire arising from wood burns the wood itself. So that's 422.26. And the other one was whatever I said it was. 11, 12, 18. Yeah. Okay. Where Krishna is talking about how that action takes place through meditating on spiritual sound. But the fourth canto one is perhaps a little clearer. Okay, I have a class at the Gurukul soon, which I have to attend to. Thank you very much for uh, having me and giving me this opportunity to speak on the Bhagavatam. All glories to Shiva Prabhupada. Thank you, Hare Krishna. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.